We're in a large cave. There is a slow descent. Moisture everywhere. You can hear it, dripping, gurgling. You continue to move down the water-flecked slope. You stumble on some slime-covered rocks. You feel the space around you change, open up. And beneath your feet, the slippery stone gives way to pebbles. There is the slow slap of water falling onto land. The air changes temperature. It's obvious you've just stumbled out into a vast open space. Sand now underfoot. You look up ahead into the gloom and see that there is some kind of lake or sea even ahead of you. And above you where there should be the sky is the cavernous, monstrous expanse of a hollowed earth. Your feet wobble at the sheer inverted vertigo of this blind sea, this vaulted, paved firmament. Where are you and how did you get here? Deep below the surface of a roving planet, untethered from the gravitational pull of any one star or its system, on a world ship passing rapidly through the interstitial realms of interstellar space. You are a subsurface cosmic hitchhiker. You are a tourist. This episode is about Irina Mullen's theory of cosmic hitchhikers. It's called a theory, but it just as well could be called a story. In fact, this episode is about a number of stories and what they might reveal to you, to all of us. So let, let me first tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a cloud. There was an interstellar cloud of gas and dust that traveled in a disk of our galaxy for millions and millions of years. And um, once, completely accidentally, it encountered a shockwave from a supernova. And as a result of that accidental event, the, uh, it triggered collapse, uh, contraction of the cloud. And that's how the sun and our solar system came into existence. So that's one of the theories that are accepted right now by scientists. This is something that is called, in science, it's called a frozen accident. Uh, physicist Gelman discussed it in 1990s, I believe, in his essay. So a frozen accident in science, it's accidental events that may happen, may not happen. But if it happens, it produces far-reaching and long-lasting consequences. So another story, another example. There was some planet in the solar system. It was about the size of Mars. It was orbiting the sun, just minding its own business. And once, one day, accidentally, it collided with Earth. And as a result, the moon was formed from that collision. So this is a giant impact theory, which is uh, commonly accepted right now by scientists. Again, that was a frozen accident because it just happened by accident. But as a result, we have moon and the moon, um, it has its own impacts on the development of life on Earth. For example, the moon stabilizes the axis of rotation of Earth. And as a result, it creates conditions more favorable for development of multicellular organisms. The moon also exerts tidal forces that mix in up oceans, again affecting the development of life. Another example is dinosaurs. So about 65 million years ago, there were comet or asteroids striking Earth, and as a result, like 75% of all life forms on Earth, they became extinct, including dinosaurs. That was another frozen accident. If it didn't happen, we still would have dinosaurs ruling our planet, probably. Which means that our existence and our, well, humans dominating this planet is a result of chain of very large number of frozen accidents. 
And if you're talking about comets or asteroid, um, let's say making dinosaurs extinct, but it also had in the past, in the distant past of our planet, uh, we had comets and asteroids striking our planet. And they were actually bringing water and carbon-based molecules to our planet. And those were required building blocks for life, for uh, creation of life on our planet. Which means, in other ways, I can say that our universe is very, very creative when it's producing conditions to uh, support the origin and evolution of life or conditions to destroy life. And everything that we can find on our planet is a result of chain of frozen accidents. Now, if you look at um, the great filter, so the idea of the great filter is that there is a chain of stages that lead to the emergence of technologically advanced civilizations. So first you need to have uh, one important stage. You need to have the right star with the right planet in the habitable zone. Then you need the emergence of simple life forms, then the emergence of complex life forms, then the emergence of species that can actually make tools, and then the emergence of technologically developed civilizations that can produce some kind of activity that we can observe. And uh, the great filters tells us that probably some of those stages or transitions from one to another is very unlikely. And if it's unlikely, that may explain why we wouldn't find complex life forms elsewhere or why we wouldn't find technologically advanced civilizations. Well, in a way, this is just a method to explain the Fermi paradox, because the Fermi paradox tells us that, okay, if there are civilizations out there, why don't we find them in our solar system and why don't we find them uh, elsewhere in a galaxy? And there are three approaches how to explain the Fermi paradox. So one is that they're just not there. They don't exist. And that's, uh, that's the idea of the great filter, because the great filter tells us, you know, they just don't exist. There's some kind of cut-off event that just prevents the emergence. Another approach is that they do exist, extraterrestrial civilizations exist, but we don't know exactly how to look for them and where to look for them. Maybe we look in the wrong places. Maybe they can, uh, the activity can produce some kind of uh, techno-signatures that we don't recognize. And the third approach is that uh, the civilizations, they may be out there, but they intentionally hiding. There may be a reason they, they don't want to be discovered. Or for example, they may be just uh, existing on the planets in their habitable zones, and they found a way to live in harmony with their worlds. So they don't really produce something that we can actually observe at interstellar distances. So as, if you go back to the great filter, as I said, it's basically the way to explain the Fermi paradox in terms of they're just not there. And if you, uh, the great filter tells us there is some of those stages in the development of life or transition from one to another, which is highly unlikely. And it's something that is common for pretty much every planet that happens to have life on it. But remember I told you about those frozen accidents. So there's so many of them that I highly doubt then there is just one cut off a band for all life forms everywhere in the galaxy. I started uh, thinking about it several years ago, and um, my first question was when free-floating planets were discovered, and free-floating planets are planets that are not gravitationally bound to stars. They just travel in, in the galaxy on their own. 
And I was thinking, oh, what about if they were just one of them would just pass through the solar system? What would happen? Of course, the answer depends where it would travel through the solar system, like in our solar system or in the overcloud. Uh, so would it affect us negatively or not? But then later I thought about civilizations that, for example, face some kind of existential threats. For example, nearby supernova explosion or the star is dying. So how would they evacuate the whole population? Because for some time, the idea of world ships, spacecraft that would pick up the whole civilization and carry it to another planetary system was sort of popular. But then if you look closer, it has problems because um, if you have to carry hundreds of thousands of members of a civilization or maybe millions of them, you also have to carry all the resources, all the supplies. You have to create biosphere. You have to have a defense protection from space radiation. So that would be gigantic, gigantic spacecraft uh, that would have to travel for at least several centuries to another planetary system. And if something goes wrong, uh, then basically they don't have any way to get resources anywhere else. They cannot just stop by someone and pick it up. And that would mean, uh, you know, any pandemic, any social unrest or any just something breaks down and they're doomed. So basically, uh, you know, how did they, they say that life happens when people make plans, right? So they yeah. can make plans, but something can definitely happen over the course of several centuries that can actually result in their complete, uh, well, demise. So it, they will not reach another planetary system. And then I, I returned back to that idea of free-floating planets. And I thought, well, maybe if a free-floating planet is passing the planetary system, just passing by, crossing it, the planetary system where civilization exists, they can actually transfer all their infrastructure and their population on that planet, on a planet, free-floating planet, and then just use it as means of transportation to reach another planetary system. And actually, uh, the idea of uh, the question of um, how many free-floating planets are out there in the galaxy, it was investigated by many researchers, and the estimates are from, for example, 2.5 Earth-like planets per star, or, uh, for example, Lincoln and Loeb, they have an article which is called Subsurface Exolife. And in that research paper, they estimated the number of free-floating planets with a radius about more than 0.3 radius of Earth uh, should be like 30 times the total number of stars in our galaxy. So you would have like oh. 30 free-floating planets for each star. So the number is very large. And Lingam and Loeb also estimated that even right now we may have a free-floating planet passing through our solar system at some distance, maybe one, uh, well, 2,000 astronomical units or a little bit more, which is inner age of the Oort cloud, like right now. They also said, you know, if they're here, we really need to send like small spacecraft with solar sails to investigate them. And so um, if there's so many of them, that means that can pass planetary systems pretty frequently, maybe like every 20, 30,000 years, uh, which means the civilization are just looking for ways to escape. It can actually um, prepare to transition to that free-floating planet and to fly away. But another way also, if there's no right planet coming by, they can create their own free-floating planet. So they can pick up like Sedna type object or Goblin type object, which is getting pretty close, like semi astronomical units from the sun, for example, and uh, travel on them toward the inner edge of the old cloud. And then from there, they can use gravity assist event, events just to fly away from, from the planetary system. 
And once they approach another one, they cannot really get exactly into the inner part of another planetary system, but they can reach the old cloud of that planetary system. And then gradually over a long, long time, they will just travel toward the inner part of the planetary system that they will reach. Otherwise, they may choose just to leave to remain in the outer parts and outer regions of that planetary system. For example, if that planetary system already has its own civilization, it has some kind of life forms and they don't want to interfere. You know, they just, they will say, okay, we'll just stay in the outer regions of the planetary system and we will not interact with those species. Or for example, over many, many years of their travel, among the stars, they can get accustomed to conditions on the free-floating planet, and they will prefer the cold and distant regions of the planetary systems. Um, another also um, consequence of this would be that there might be free-floating planets captured by planetary systems. They might have extraterrestrial species or might have extraterrestrial artifacts or alien artifacts present in them. Well, uh, they might be in hibernation, but I don't think all of them would want to be in hibernation. And they could use uh, sources of energy, for example, like controlled nuclear fusion. Because we know scientists on Earth are already working on achieving a controlled nuclear fusion. So those extraterrestrials, they would have to be advanced. They would have to be at least a few thousand years in the development ahead of humankind because they would need to have spacecraft to transfer them from their planet to Sedna-type or Goblin-type objects. They would have to build uh, infrastructures to live on those objects until they reach the old cloud. They would have to have perhaps propulsion systems and some methods of navigation uh, to use gravity-assist events in the old cloud also to leave the old cloud or to um, intercept a free-floating planet. So they would have to be a few thousand years ahead of us in development. And then they would have to build uh, some kind of subsurface uh, habitats on the free-floating planet. Now, what is important here is that studies demonstrated that some free-floating planets, they may have subsurface oceans. And uh, those advanced extraterrestrials, they can actually get to those subsurface oceans and build their habitats there because uh, water protects from space radiation. And space radiation is very, very harsh in the interstellar space. Uh, so that's the, one of the advantages of using a free-floating planet. So unlike a spacecraft that has very, very limited um, resources, on the free-floating planets, they will have protection from space radiation if they reside in subsurface. They have huge number of resources. They have some gravity, surface gravity, which is also very important because um, if you ever hear it, there's something called gravitational biology. So it studies the effect of gravity on living organisms on Earth. And our bodies, all the cells of all living organisms on Earth, they're very finely tuned to gravity. World ship, it's another name for a very large spacecraft that would carry uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of people or some kind of members of civilizations. So basically, if you, you can have, it is possible to build an interstellar spacecraft to carry um, small or medium groups of uh, some extraterrestrial or human travelers. 
However, world ship means spacecraft which is so huge it can carry large populations. To become cosmic hitchhikers, we first we had to learn how to colonize cold worlds in our solar system. For example, like uh, the moons of uh, Jovian planets located through the sun, uh, objects in the Kuiper belt. And uh, we would really have to um, expand up to distance of like 70, 80 astronomical units away from the sun. So then we would have just, and we could think about that. We would have to learn how to build infrastructure, subsurface infrastructures. We are not ready for that. If you think about the future of humankind, so probably because of the nuclear reactions happening in the sun, inside the sun, uh, the sun is gradually changing, it's evolving. Uh, as a result, probably in one, two billion years from now, it will make conditions on Earth inhabitable. So we'd have to go somewhere else. And But it's the, the good news is that we have at least several hundred million years to think about it. You don't have to worry about it right now. You see grandparents take photos of their grandchildren playing in autumn leaves. Delivery vans take the place of rubbish trucks. Behind them are fire brigades, ambulances, an Amazon contractor Hyundai van, unprotected building sites, Bridges spanning the mouths of off-colored rivers. You see processes you have no name for. A quark entanglement, a rocket engine fighting the tyranny of gravity. Farms for life that seem hard to fathom. You can't make out the dinner that will be on the table that night. The children born a safe death. From street level in town, behind the swirls of plastic garbage. The tentacles of lights at night in dark countryside beyond the line of seashore, ships sailing. Beyond that, a mountain of tall buildings. Walls and the irradiation of past hydrogen bombs on Pacific atolls. The adventures of Polynesian explorers sailing into the unknown. Below you now a plane at cruising altitude. The spaceship Earth itself hurtling through the void. Pull your loved ones out of the car crash. Jump into the river. There next, starlings rush by, and above you, satellites. The sea of tranquility, a flagpole. Etienne, slow down. Where do you think you're going? At 67,000 miles per hour. How silly tribes and personalities are until you're alone, or all together, below the subsurface, existing a tourist, a cosmic hitchhiker. Thank you to Irina Mullins for taking the time out from her garden where she looks after her tomato plants in the hot Austin, Texas sun. You can find a link to her fascinating and imaginative paper on cosmic hitchhikers in our show notes. This episode was written and produced by John Holton with additional writing by myself, Ava Kelly. Sound editing and design was by David Magnuson. Mundi Vondi is our executive producer and also created the artwork for this episode in collaboration with Midjourney. Additional research, script supervision and fact-checking was by Savita Joshi. Follow us on social media and subscribe for more wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. We'd be delighted to hear from you.